welcome to another edition of Tied Together. My name is Katrina Logie and I'm your host today. And today we're going to sit down with Sunny Harm, who is the founder and CEO of Fulcrum, uh, which is a manufacturing ERP platform dedicated to helping manufacturers build a better future. And Fulcrum is a software as a service SaaS, ERP, MRP, and MES platform allowing small and mixed manufacturers to improve efficiency through workflow optimization and automated data collection. And basically, we're going to learn more about what it delivers in terms of value through digital and also saving time and how it's helping the manufacturing industry. So welcome, Sunny, to Tied Together today, and great to have you all the way from Minneapolis. Thank you. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me. Well, great to have you. And let's talk about, you obviously set up Fulcrum four years ago. Uh, The product launched two years ago. Before that, the primary group that's created Fulcrum has been together since 2015, so quite some time. Oh, 2015. That's right. That's what I read, actually. It's just the, the, when you're doing the maths, you kind of think, okay, how long has it actually been, you know, right. running in a kind of, you know, functional with clients, et cetera, without sort of building it. So let's talk about, you know, Fulcrum and in terms of how you're helping manufacturers and, and why you came up with the idea. You know, you, you mentioned earlier that you were saying that actually technology was built for manufacturing. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the things that we have today were originally the original technologies were inspired or sponsored if you will by manufacturers. So I think we talk about digitizing things and one of the first industries to store information about how their business was running in a digital way were manufacturers. Uh, one of the the biggest innovations I think in the 70s and 80s and 90s was this concept of computer controlled manufacturing or CNC machining where We can write little bits of software to tell a machine how to make something for us. And it makes it exactly the same every single time. So, you know, there's a lot of machinists out there that are in the world, all over the world, that every single day write lines of code that program machines to make parts for us for all sorts of different things. So there's a lot of stuff that that happens right now that I think there are a lot of people that are learning how to write software to make web applications and websites and things like that. And I think it's often missed that the first generation of a big need for people to learn how to write software was actually manufacturing um, decades and decades ago. So I like to remind myself of that, that whatever it is that we've come up with, the the concepts of these things have been known and explored by manufacturers for a long time, even though it may seem new to a lot of people who don't know about it. Mm, it kind of it makes sense when you think about it. How machines, you know, run on code basically, and the fact that it might have been around for longer than a lot of industries. And you, in terms of you know your background, how did you get into sort of you know manufacturing and and building, you know, this platform? Mostly accidentally. You know, I, I wish there was a story that my family owned a manufacturing facility, and I've been on the shop floor since I was a little kid, um, eating all my meals next to a CNC machine, but that's that's really just not true. The real story is mostly of a kid who immigrated here. Uh, my parents 
had nowhere to go for graduate school after college in China during the culture right after the cultural revolution because they just didn't exist. So, like a lot of other people at that time, they they left China to to find education elsewhere, and they landed here in Minneapolis. My mom studied computer science. My dad was a civil engineer, and most of the time that I had that was random in between things, I spent at one of their labs and learning how to play with computers and learning how to play with sand. So those were my two my two biggest experiences. And after school, I stumbled upon manufacturing. It was one of those things where one project after another was tied to some manufacturer. And and over time, I just became an expert at a lot of things that I had no idea that I was going to become an expert at. Like so many of us, right? Our, our, Our serendipitous experiences really shape who we are. And that was one of those things where, you know, maybe... Somebody else might have declined that project, but for me, I dove headfirst into it. It was really interesting to me, and uh, over time, just learned a lot about small businesses, medium-sized businesses, big businesses, the entire supply chain, and really, primarily, the focus for my life has been on how do things get made, and that really interested me. It really was extremely gratifying to satisfy that curiosity, and you know, over the last 15 years, I've worked with almost 2,000 different manufacturers in various capacities, so still barely scratching the surface. There's hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of people that are out there making making things for us. But that experience has been really eye-opening for seeing the need of having a new platform. Right. So you really understand the manufacturing industry and what it needs in terms of building a platform. I think I understand it far more than most. I wouldn't say that I understand it enough, even still today. And I think Every single day, my my biggest goal is to just collect as much information as possible so that I can continue to iterate on these beliefs that I have. So, mm-hmm. so you, I mean, you actually mentioned. I, I I wanted to sort of just a little bit, little bit about you know. You mentioned intuition as experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think we're we're born with very little intuition as a baby, we, we know that we need to express ourselves and and get fed and and be safe and things like that. But over time, all of the things that become our intuition, our gut feeling, I think there's a lot of science, but a lot of anecdotal experience that you can tie to this fact that as, as you learn more about something, your intuition about what's right or wrong grows. And so for me, a lot of people say that they have an intuition about something and I have to, you know, remind them, are you asking yourself how much experience you have in this particular area? Because if you have very little, your intuition may not be that valuable. And there's a lot of other folks here that have worked here a long time that have a ton of experience, and yet they don't trust their intuition from some version of imposter syndrome or just because they're very conscientious people. So in those instances, I think it's really important to point out that your intuition should be trusted just because you have the most experience about it in the room. So there's other, other tools that we have. We focus a lot on data in our lives right now, the, obviously, there's a lot of data available for us to analyze. And we make a lot of analyses uh, and a lot of decisions based on that analysis. But I think fundamentally speaking, we really, really should not throw away the value of adding intuition to that data analysis to whatever we can measure. Because I think the raw data doesn't really tell you anything. Otherwise, we have robots making decisions for us already, right? So, I mean, yeah, that was, you know, obviously you're relating sort of like it is important as well as relying on computers and data that human beings come into the mix and when it comes to kind of building things. Yeah, and 
I think we we've learned this even from machine learning, right? Like the what we know on how to program computers to act like humans is that we train them. We we give more experience to these machine learning algorithms and as they see more pictures of bumblebees, they're better at identifying bumblebees just as just as humans are. So I think even the machines that we've programmed, we've programmed in a way where they rely on an increasingly large body of experience to essentially act on and make decisions on. So even our best performing robots are built on the same premise that their intuition, their decision making gets better as they get more experience. Mm-hmm. The more they use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, let's talk about Fulcrum, you know, explain, you know, how, how it works and, and, and how you're helping with the manufacturing industry in terms of building a ERP enterprise resource planning system? Well, I think that is exactly what we are. I think one, that's one of the things that we struggle with from a marketing standpoint and from a communication standpoint. When when people say ERP or, or say enterprise resource planning, they some most people get some sort of stress hives or, or some bad memory of, of implementing it and, and using it. And for us, that is what we are. We, we satisfy that need and we do it in a different way. But we want to make sure that other people understand that we've done it completely differently. We've built this system from the ground up instead of copying from some other system. I think to zoom back out a little bit from an abstract perspective, it's always really difficult to take your life and all the decisions that you made, especially if you're a business of hundreds of people, and fit it into a system, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's no different than moving into a different building or into a different house or you know, changing jobs and fitting your skills into the, the processes and the roles and responsibilities of a, of a new organization. So for us, a lot of what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to build our product in a way that starts from an understanding of the end user, the person that's using the system to put the information in. Mm-hmm. And I think the realization there is that every single business owner and every single executive and every single manager and everybody that is in any sort of leadership position that's trying to make decisions, they want information to make those decisions. That's the primary value of any ERP system. But as we continue to move forward, the quality of the data that goes in is paramount. If you have to double check the information and make sure that it's it's correct, that adds an extra layer of anxiety, of disbelief, of, of unusability. And so for us, one of our primary beliefs is that if we can make the system extremely usable and easy for the actual end users that are putting the information in, then everything else, all the other information and data will continue to become richer and better uh, and easier. So that's that's what, one of the, the pillars that we have. And a lot of our other decisions just stem from that, about how we created it. For us, in the beginning days, we spent a lot of time just learning manufacturing. I obviously, even when I started the company, had years and years of experience, but I made the decision really early on to hire only people that were very good at writing software or very good at talking to customers or very good at marketing, but with no experience in in manufacturing. And that made it really hard. It made it so that for the first four years of our existence, we were not really building a product. We weren't really marketing ourselves as a product or, or trying to do that. We were just trying to learn. We built custom software we work with them. We, we, we still had a business, but you could have considered us mostly a consulting firm. We made websites for manufacturers. We uh, ran search engine marketing campaigns for them. We did whatever we could to make sure that we we're delivering value, which means that they would want to pay us. 
but also we we just said we didn't say no to anything that a manufacturer wanted us to do and a lot of that was just how do we learn to be one of them how do we work alongside them in a way where we can think like them and in the moment there are a lot of people that really disagreed with that decision they're like you could go a lot faster if you just brought someone on board that had a lot of experience in manufacturing but for me if it's really our desire to build something both new and different and better the only way that we can do that is if we start from an outside perspective and i really think that that long tail of figuring out the market and the user and the customer that's really has been our defining difference is that our answers are different but they're really good and they represent a quantum leap forward instead of just an incremental one so uh, I'm grateful for those folks that, that were here a long time ago for staying through that really painful journey of feeling like idiots for a while until we became experts. But I really think that that process has been extremely valuable for, for the, both the company and for the individuals that were here too. That's interesting. So you didn't have anybody working in the manufacturing industry. You just basically started from scratch in terms of understanding it. That's right. And And also I needed to be able to suppress my knowledge from before to make sure that the baggage that I brought wasn't too influential on the organization as well. So another piece of discipline internally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause your, your background has been, you know, working in similar industries before. Mm-hmm. That's right. How is it you're improving manufacturing by, you know, creating this enterprise resource planning for businesses? Manufacturing obviously has changed over the years, but but how? What have you seen the changes, and how is technology helping with the changes? Yeah, I, th- I think like we talked about earlier, a lot of manufacturers had some sort of platform that could be considered an ERP. This acronym ERP actually was coined to try to sell what what this thing does, right? It, it, and, and you know, using the Star Trek Enterprise spaceship as an example of a computer that ties together every system inside that spaceship that that's really where the e and erp comes from and we do very much the same thing i think the insight here is that a lot of these systems that existed back then they were able to unlock levels of coordination and efficiency that had never existed in manufacturing before and they were more than sufficient for for decades for many 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 years and during that time, instead of focusing on making these systems better, we, as an industry, focused on making better machines to make the parts, making better machines to you know, move the parts from point A to point B, making better ways to design the parts and better ways to read it and better ways to uh, measure the parts and better ways to make sure that the quality of the parts are good enough. And I think all those things have been extremely transformative and valuable uh, in manufacturing. I think... Today, though, we're at a point in time where the primary constraint, biggest thing that's preventing the industry from making a big leap forward isn't the machines anymore. It isn't new 3D printers or uh, adding another access to your CNC machine or adding another you know, micrometer of accuracy to your measurement tools. I think what's happening right now is that the world is moving faster, that products are innovating faster, that there's more and more blanket orders and there's smaller quantities for each order. And there's more and more of those orders that we are in a world where flexibility and agility are extremely valuable to the business network in general, that the primary constraint right now is the speed at which we can coordinate our efforts between parts of the company, between the sales department and the production area, 
between shipping and logistics, between our warehouse and receiving and all these different places. And almost all the systems besides ours and a couple others are run primarily on paper. And that just is no longer fast enough. And so for us, our primary focus is on how do we make every single seam within our customers' businesses as automated as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. And that's really where we see the best value that we deliver to these customers is that the experience of using the product is really good and really easy. But you know, mostly the ability to know what else is going on and for people to make decisions quickly without having to print a report out and attend a production meeting once a week, they're able to make these decisions real time, much faster, much more live. So I think we're going to continue to double down on that, continue to make sure that our, the performance of the product the usability of the product, the design of it, and the automation of it are those are the things that I, I believe that we we really differentiate us. Now, our challenge is that we have to do that and also nail all the things that were done by the previous generation of software as well, right? So we have kind of double duty in terms of what we have to build. Okay, so you're are you sort of basically making it paperless and and automated, obviously to save time. But also the processes of, of um, manufacturing. Are you changing the processes of, of how things are built, basically? Yeah, I think that one really important thing to distinguish is that we don't actually make any parts. Fulcrum as a product doesn't help you in the making of the parts. And I think we need to be humble ourselves and, and realize that, that what we really do is we facilitate the making of parts. We help you design them better. We help you figure out your routings better. We help you figure out your bill of materials better. We help you figure out when to build things better. And uh, we help you figure out like when to buy things and who to buy them from. All those things are decisions that are enhanced by, by Fulcrum. But for us, our primary goal isn't to say that we're going to replace anybody on the manufacturing floor or in the office. I, I think we've already cut back so much that there's very few humans compared to what they used to be in manufacturing companies. I think philosophically, our primary goal is to make every single person that works at a manufacturing company feel like the best version of themselves, to feel as superhuman as possible in, in how they in how they operate and what they do. So if, if you don't work in manufacturing, I think the best analogy would be that imagine if every decision you had to make on what to eat and where to go and, and how to spend your time had every piece of information that you could possibly want right at your fingertips. And I think that the world has delivered that to you as a consumer, both through social media and through search engines and through a lot of other applications that we have. We can get a car to pick us up within just a few minutes and we can go anywhere that we want and we can have food delivered to us immediately from a bunch of restaurants that we know and like. We can have reviews and ratings on where to go to eat and what shows to see and which movies are good or bad, or which ones we're going to like or not. I think it's really weird for people to hear this, but businesses don't really have that. Businesses have to do a a ton of work, even within their own business, just for the data that is already inside their organization. They do a ton of work to excavate that information out before they can make the correct decision. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how intuition is experience. Well, the experience is shifting. The world is changing fast enough that we don't have 10 years to build up that experience anymore. Things change every three years. And so, as our intuition gets weaker and weaker because the world is changing faster and faster, we need something else to enhance our intuition as much as possible. So that's how we see ourselves as, as an enabling force to make each and every person at a manufacturer stronger. 
Okay. And and obviously help with the supply chain and the communication of the supply chain. Yeah, that that's our dream. Uh, I think that's something that we can we can absolutely do for the market and for the industry. But I think we get excited about that, but we we need to focus on our customers right now and and that will come when we have enough uh, customers that are on Fulcrum that we can make some cool things happen. But for now, I think it would be both unethical and also unwise from a business decision perspective to tease ourselves too much with that. So we really, really, really try to focus as much on is what we're doing actually making our customers' businesses better with every decision that we make. So. Okay. So how long has ERP, for example, platforms, how long have they been around? I think that the what, the first thing that you could probably call an ERP system was built uh, in the early 1980s, late 1970s. Uh, there was a project called Polaris that was essentially an ERP solution. And I think the, the charter mission for that particular project was we, we have all this information that we literally have to write online the pieces of paper and have somebody else compute. Can't we just automate that? Can't we just always know how much is on our shelves and what we have to buy from who? And I think that was like the first nugget of something that could be considered a MRP or manufacturing resource planning software or an ERP, which would be an enterprise resource planning software. And I think that that evolved obviously over time as different businesses had different requirements and different needs. But overall, I would say that the first robust products started to become adopted and sold in the mid-1980s, late-1980s. And that there are still a lot of really popular products that are out there doing a really good job for the market where their fundamental product software code uh, was written in the early 1990s or late 1980s. And I think that you could hear that sentence in a way that's very denigrating. But really, the way that I'm trying to say it is... In a sense of awe, most engineers that write software are afraid that their software is going to be invalidated within weeks or months or, or years. And to have, imagine if you were the software developer in 1989 that wrote the software and it's still being used by hundreds of thousands of, of different companies across the world right now, there's some satisfaction that's there, right? And, and I think even those engineers would believe that by now, these systems would have been updated and improved. And, and I think that that's that's the type of we're we're trying to honor their efforts and honor their work and the work that we do. So, okay. So, how have you know enterprise ELP systems? How have they progressed? How have they changed? How have they moved forward? In terms of you know they've been around for a long time, but in terms of digitalizing them and what you've built, for example. Yeah, I think that a lot of the effort that's gone into these systems has been in a direction that I don't agree with, which is. They've, they've gone in the direction of trying to make each and every system as customizable as possible to fit your business exactly. And I think that the reason why people think that they want that is they think that, well, that, that's going to make it easier for people to use because it's going to be exactly what we need. And what we realized is that actually, as we continue to increase customization, the time it took to implement this software went up, the cost of paying consultants went up. And the happiness of the consultants that were developing it went down because all these consultants who before were essentially business experts advising companies on how to use a software then kind of became reactive builders, if you will, that just built whatever the whims of the customers were. And I think that the somewhat 
something that could be considered offensive, but I think isn't really, but is actually true, is that the, the user, the, the customer doesn't really know what they want out of the software. And it's not that they're dumb or that they're uninformed. It's that their primary intuition and their primary experience and their focus in life is on making parts out of whatever material that they've chosen to work with as their primary understanding. They've chosen to really understand rubber or glass or metal or wood or plastic or a litany of different materials that they might be working with. They don't understand JavaScript and HTML and CSS and SQL and Mongo and APIs and all these different frameworks. Their intuition isn't there. And fundamentally, it's far more valuable for us to be able to tell them what's possible and to come up with what's possible by learning how they operate their business. Because we don't have to learn anything about the actual real manufacturing that they're experts at. We really just have to learn how they operate as a business and we can supply a lot of the value that's there. So what was manufacturing like before digital? And you know, let's talk about where it's coming from and where it's going. I think uh, a lot of the experience for manufacturing before this most recent wave of technological advancement was just like most people's lives in general. Before cell phones were a big thing, most people had little notebooks and, and little pieces of paper that they would write their you know, grocery lists on. And I think there was just a lot more manual effort being done to operate your life. And I think that was the same experience for manufacturers. The results of what parts that they made were written on pieces of paper. What they were supposed to do was written on giant whiteboards or, or chalkboards. The drawings that of what to build were printed out and notes were written on top of that. And I think that a lot of that experience was really quite okay for the time period that they were at. And I think that the biggest change that's, I think, happening is that most of these users, the people that are on the shop floor, the machinists, as well as the owners of the manufacturing facilities, all of them have realized together through a lot of the innovation that's happened in, in personal devices, in cell phones and in websites and in, in applications like TurboTax and Mint, things like this, all of these things have shown them that, okay, there's actually a whole world of possibility that's, that's out there for how to manage running your life and, and probably running your business. So a lot of the people that are on Fulcrum, their primary experience is in getting their information immediately in using Fulcrum as their notebook, essentially, and putting the data into the system right away. And I think that's going to power a huge amount of improvement to the lives of a lot of these business users. Mm. I, I think the primary thing that they're going to see is that the work that they do will immediately be able to be usable by their colleague. And that colleague will be able to do their work much faster and do it in a, a much easier way that mistakes of miscommunication and writing stuff down and not being read elsewhere will go away. Mm -hmm. What does the future like with ERP and, and, and digital manufacturing? What does the future look like in, in that area? I think one really important thing to reinforce is that all of the technology that's out there for any industry, manufacturing included, exists to enhance that particular industry. So before there were computers, we still had 
Ford pioneering assembly lines and making a ton of cars uh, using clipboards and pieces of paper and whiteboards and chalkboards. Once we computerized it, uh, we were able to automate a lot of reporting, a lot of analysis, and just get better information faster. The current breed of ERP systems that are out there were built and architected and, and deployed without the knowledge that the internet existed and was going to be as big as it is. So I can very clearly see a future where manufacturers are much more connected with each other, the same way that we are connected with each other on LinkedIn or socially, personally, through Instagram or Facebook, or, or, or we're able to chat with each other on, on WhatsApp. These are things that, that really didn't exist at the time when the concepts of the current ERP systems existed. And for us, we just have the benefit of passively knowing that these technologies are robust and really beneficial, and we're baking them into Fulcrum, and other people are baking them into their products as well. So the near-field vision for what manufacturing looks like is that it's just much more connected, that communication between manufacturers and within manufacturers will be much more fluid That'll be a lot easier. That'll feel a lot less disjointed and it'll feel a lot more connected. And I think there's two reasons why this is going to happen very quickly. One is that these technologies are really robust, have been applied to other industries very well. I think two humans here, at least in the, in the Western world, uh, are very used to having a lot of direct access to each other through technology and it'll be obvious to them. It'll be intuitive to them to have them have it in the workplace as well. And then I think lastly, the ability to deploy and build software is so uh, robust now that it'll make it easier for Fulcrum and for other competitors and for uh, more legacy systems to upgrade themselves too. So I think a lot of people are, are working on it uh, because of, of how easy it is and how easy it's become. So beyond that, you know, once we connect all these businesses together, once they're a lot more intertwined with each other, the hierarchies of what can happen after that are, I think, philosophically unpredictable. I, I, I don't think anyone can really know. I think there's some dreams about making things produced easier, better, more local, more dis decentralized and distributed, more more in tune with where the demand is. I think things will, will get cheaper to make in lower quantities. I think in the history of manufacturing, we've always had economies of scale that have that, that we've really benefited from. And I, I believe that there will be an opportunity to achieve good cost and good margins and good production efficiencies at much lower volumes, which means that you don't have to sell a billion of something to get it to be commercially viable. There will be things that maybe have a market for only 10,000 or 50,000 people, but we're going to get really good, high quality, low cost production for those types of items as well. And, and I think you're, we're already seeing the market shift that way. It's just, just that the margins are too low or the cost is too high, which then restricts the market even more. I think we're going to see a huge amount of improvement to the things that we're able to buy that only we like because of some hobby or some interest or some specific thing about us as humans. And I think that'll be really, really good. We'll, we'll be entering into a phase where manufactured goods are far more personalized to who we are. Mm -hmm. And is there, are there any downsides to technology edging in manufacturing? Uh, I think there definitely are. There always is. I think there's structural shifts always. Manufacturing, which, which might be a piece of context that people aren't really aware of, but seems obvious when you think about it. Manufacturing has always been kind of at the forefront here. The companies that did not adopt CNC's computers to control their machines 
uh, they don't exist anymore. There aren't very, there aren't any manufacturers really that are still manually doing a lot of this work without any computer assistance, maybe some here and there. And then if you didn't go from a, you know, two axis to a three axis to a five axis CNC machine, you're probably not in business where you're, you're, you're losing your hold on the market as well. And so as technology diffuses through manufacturing in general, his, history shows us that there will be some companies that will go out of business and others that will win. That's just kind of how it works. But I think also on the other end of, of the spectrum, right now we have a lot more cohesion in terms of, I don't even know, like prestige or knowledge-based transfer within manufacturing. People who know how to do this thing, people who have a particular relationship with a, a customer, they win for the long term for many, many generations. I think we're at a first period in time where the average number of companies that have children or employees that want to take over the business, that's at an all-time low right now. So I think that's ending, that that kind of multi-generational, multi-succession feeling to manufacturing is, is already going away for whatever reason. It might come back, I don't know. But I think what will happen with more technology is that it will continue to commoditize manufacturing, which on one hand seems bad. We're making it so that the average manufacturer has a little less differentiation between each other. But on the other hand, is is also good. It makes it so that the volatility within the market, how much money you make, will be a lot lower. It'll be a lot safer to own a manufacturing company. But your 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 profit floor might be higher, but your ceiling might be lower. I think it'll make it so that truly innovative manufacturers that are doing something in a different way will have a much better chance of capturing a huge amount of of productivity and profit in a short amount of time. But I think this kind of homey feel to manufacturing might be going away because of it. So, mm-hmm. And which systems that you use could you not live without in manufacturing? Well, I think already, you know, this is something that happened in the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, moving drafting from physical paper drafting in terms of blueprints, how to build something into something that's computer generated AutoCAD or SolidWorks or something like that, these CAD CAM systems, I I think that most manufacturers would say, almost all would say that they can't live without that. And there's going to be a lot of innovation and progress on computer-assisted drafting systems for manufacturing in general. I think in the future, at a certain size, when your company gets large enough, having a system that, that aggregates all your data, that gives you the ability to see what's going on, that's something that most companies can't live without at a certain size. When you get to Certainly, five or ten employees, but it, like if you're a 100 employee company, there's there's almost no way that you're going to be able to function without some sort of data aggregation tool and, and, and enterprise uh, management tool. And and I think lastly, also as we continue to go forward, communication tools, whatever it is that you choose, whether it's Outlook or Gmail uh, or Slack or Teams, something that allows you to communicate digitally and, and remotely, those tools will be you know very very difficult to not have. Mm-hmm. Do you create your own systems as well as, you know, using automate, uh, you know, the, the, the ones you mentioned, like AutoCAD, for example? No, we, we try to play nicely in the sandbox with everybody else. I think it's a lesson that I learned very painfully early in my career. But if you look around at the companies that try to do everything, they do nothing very well. So, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of companies uh, in the past that are like this, where their primary way of growth was building something that already existed. For us, our philosophy is if there's a company out there whose sole mission and purpose is to do CRM stuff, we're going to integrate with them. 
we'll have some light CRM features, but we're going to expect you to choose a CRM system that we'll integrate with. And we'll do it very easily out of the box. It's not going to require a huge amount of setup or a huge amount of, of consulting work. It'll just work very easily. Well, for us, what we focus on is manufacturing operations. If you need it to operate the, the, the manufacturing, the production side of things, then we want to control all that data. So that's sales orders and invoices. There's, it's a lot. It's a huge amount of stuff that we have already. But if there's a robust system like AutoCAD or SolidWorks, like you know Salesforce or Pipedrive or something, or like QuickBooks or Zero and, and accounting, if or shipping stuff, there's you know Freight Pop and Ship Engine and Shippo. There's all these different companies whose their primary focus is that type of functionality. Well, we're just going to integrate with them, play nicely have a public-facing API. Anyone can use it, not be restricted. We're not going to charge for it. We're going to make it extremely frictionless to play with others really well. Uh, and we do that so that we can buy ourselves the luxury of focusing to be really good on just a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. And which of those couple of things are? The, the manufacturing operations, anything that is associated with that. And what is the future for Fulcrum in particular in terms of manufacturing operations? I think for us right now, we, we're still kind of in stealth mode. I'm, I'm here talking to you. So certainly we're, we're starting to ramp the engine of awareness up. Very few people know who we are. We spend very little on marketing. Most of, of what we're doing is we're trying to focus on a, a small group of, of customers, but we, we've been tripling every year for quite some time and, and probably will do so again this year, you know, barring any sort of events that might prevent that from happening. So I think for us right now, it's focusing on us internally, making sure that we're able to provide the best customer service to our customers, organizing ourselves in the right way, making sure that we can afford it from a cost standpoint, working with investors to plan out any investment that we might need to get to where we want to go. I think very soon, though, we're going to be reaching out to a lot of manufacturers and you know getting their feedback on, on who we are and seeing if we might fit any of them. I think the response has been good. We've had most of our customers have referred somebody else to us and, and we're, we're kind of not even able to ingest all of that traffic, all of those uh, leads and all of those deals. And there's a, you know, there's a popular saying in the startup world that good startups don't die of starvation. They die of indigestion. And so I would say that in the near term future, we're just trying to make sure that we chew our food as best as possible. Great. I love it. Well, Sally, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And thank you very much for your insightful information on manufacturing and and digital. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Tied Together. If you have any comments or you have any feedback for us, you can always email us at tiedtogether at cohesus.co.uk.